great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the lost, the mysterious, and the murdered. This is the second of two parts discussing Russell Williams. If you haven't listened to part one, you should go back and listen to that first. We'll be waiting for you. Before we begin, I would like to caution listeners that this episode contains mature content, including sexual assault and murder. Listener discretion is advised. I need to make a correction from part one. I identified the location of the base as Tweed. The Royal Canadian Air Force Base is in Quinte West, Ontario, on the Bay of Quinte, in Lake Ontario. Williams had a vacation home in nearby Tweed, My apologies for the mix-up. When we left Russell Williams, he was recently appointed base commander at Canadian Forces Base Trenton, Canada's largest air base and the hub of overseas support for the Canadian military. During the day, Williams is a respected man, trusted with protecting Canada. By night, he is a creeper, a stalker, a thief. Things are getting out of hand. The downward spiral begins. Out of respect for his victims, I am limiting the amount of detail shared here about his attacks. The first woman that Russell Williams assaulted kept her personal information out of the public eye. She is known only as Jane Doe. September 17th, 2009. Jane Doe was a young woman living with her boyfriend and their eight-week-old daughter. Her boyfriend was away, traveling on business. She came home around 9.30 p.m., put her daughter down to sleep in her crib, and settled into bed for the evening. She was awakened by hands gripping her head. Thinking she was dreaming, she struggled, but this was real. This was terrifying and real. Her daughter slept in the next room. She asked if he would kill her, and he told her no. They stayed like this for several minutes, possibly as long as 30 Williams clutching her as she writhed in terror and pleaded with him. He struck her several times in the back of the head, commanding her to be still, be quiet, and be still. Jane told him that she was fat, as she'd just had a baby, hoping this would dissuade him from raping her. Quite the opposite, he told her that she was sweet and perfect. She asked if he was going to hurt her baby, and Williams assured her that he would not. Then he blindfolded her and stripped her, taking pictures with what she described as a fancy camera with a strap. Williams touched her and positioned her, taking graphic photos. Then she heard him rummaging through her drawers. It appeared the assault had ended. He ordered her to count to 300. She stopped when she got to 70, and he told her to keep counting. When she got to 200, she called out, but heard no reply. Jane stripped off her blindfold and called her family and police, begging for help. The attack had lasted two hours. 
At the beginning of the assault, he'd told her it was one in the morning, and the call she made to police was logged around three in the morning. She described her attacker as older, dad-like, with an expensive, fancy camera. She noted that he was wearing a sweater, which she ripped during the assault, and hiking boots. Jane did not hear a car or a boat start up after he left the area. She also noted that he smelled dirty. Aside from blows to the head and the terror of the attack, she was not injured and did not seek medical attention. Her infant daughter was safe and unharmed. Despite collecting DNA evidence from the victim, police were unable to identify her attacker. In an attempt to prevent a DNA collection, Williams had taken linens from her bed with him, as well as several pieces of her lingerie and undergarments. He later disposed of these items at the dump. September 30th, 2009. Williams struck again. This time his victim was 46-year-old Lori Massacott. She had fallen asleep in front of the TV on a Tuesday night. She woke to a blanket over her face and she was being struck repeatedly. Shh, the man said. I need you to be quiet. Williams then used a knife to slice away her clothing, tie her up, and for the next three hours, he positioned her body into snapped pictures of her. Humiliating, degrading, dehumanizing pictures. What Massacott learned later enraged her. Jane Doe had been attacked in the same way, in the same community, less than two weeks earlier. The police didn't publicize the Jane Doe attack. Perhaps Massacott would have been more vigilant had she known a violent predator was loose in the community. Even more disturbing, when the Ontario Provincial Police informed her a man had confessed to her assault, they stood on her porch sharing the good news. She looked past them. Just three doors down was a home draped with crime scene tape. Russell Williams and his wife had a home down the street from her. She had seen him in the neighborhood many times. Williams and Harriman purchased the Tweed residence in 2004 and used it as a vacation retreat. The first woman that Williams murdered was someone that he knew through his position in the military. Her name was Marie-France Como. She was a corporal in the Canadian forces. Marie-France was an attendant on a flight Williams took. As her commanding officer, he had access to her personnel file, which contained her address and marital status. Williams let himself into her home while she was traveling. He took several photos of himself wearing her lingerie. Camo noticed things in her room were amiss, but she blamed her boyfriend for the disarray. Her boyfriend denied disturbing her belongings. They had no way of knowing the truth. On Williams' second trip to her home in late November of 2009, he let himself in and concealed himself in the basement, waiting patiently for her to go to sleep so he could attack. He was wearing a mask and came prepared with a murder kit containing zip ties, a large metal flashlight, and, of course, duct tape. He also brought a video camera and a still camera. Instead of going straight to bed, Camo went looking for one of her two cats and found the cat in the basement, staring at Russell Williams. Williams lunged at her and the corporal fought for her life. She hissed at him as Williams struck her repeatedly with the heavy flashlight he was carrying. He restrained her in the basement using duct tape and zip ties. Get out. I want you to leave, she demanded. 
Williams calmly went upstairs and turned off the lights and covered the windows. Satisfied that they would not be disturbed, he dragged her upstairs and took additional pictures and continued his vicious assault. The video camera recorded each moment. Camo was tough and determined. She fought him valiantly, but was no match for the large, muscled commander. When she realized that she could not overpower him, she begged, I've been good, she told him. I deserve to live. Williams was unemotional as he covered her mouth and nose with duct tape, and the brave woman, who had struggled and fought for hours, slowly suffocated. Days later, in his capacity as Canadian Forces Base Trenton Commander, Williams penned a letter of sympathy to Camo's father. So sorry for your loss. The holidays in 2009 were uneventful, but by January, Williams was ready to kill again. This time, he targeted 27-year-old Jessica Lloyd, a pretty brunette he'd spotted while out on one of his walks. He saw her running on her treadmill through the window of her home, January 29th, he broke into her house and subdued her. Then he loaded her into his Nissan Pathfinder and drove to his house in Tweed. While in the vacation house he shared with his wife, Mary Elizabeth being back in Ottawa, he made Jessica shower and put her in bed where she slept for a few hours before he resumed his assault. Jessica realized she would not survive this attack, and she asked Williams to make sure that her mother knows that she loved her. This was all captured on videotape, including moments later when he strangled her. He dumped Jessica's body in the garage of the house on Cozy Cove Lane. It was cold and safe. It was, after all, the middle of winter in Ontario. Williams left for California the next day. When he finally returned to Tweed on February 2nd, he loaded Jessica's body into the back of the Pathfinder and left her in the woods. Meanwhile, investigators searched for Jessica Lloyd and made note of the distinctive tire tracks found near her home. These tracks were photographed by police. A February 4th, 2010 checkpoint was set up, where police checked tires for a match to the ones found at Lloyd's home. Williams was stopped at the checkpoint, and police noted similarities between his vehicle's tires and what they were looking for. I have read that a police officer noted a car parked on the shoulder near Jessica Lloyd's house the night she was taken, that the officer made a note of where the car was, as well as the make and model, but did not write down the license plate. This incident led to concerns about how police handle these situations. The officer in question has second-guessed her choices. I'm sure of it. How could she have known what was taking place in the neighborhood that night? Of course, if she had recorded the plate... When Jessica was reported missing on Friday, it would have led directly to the house in Tweed, where she was alive through much of the day. This detail, that police made note of a silver Nissan Pathfinder parked on the shoulder of Jessica's street, is not widely reported in coverage of this case. On February 10th, police called Williams in for questioning. They matched his boots to prints found at Jessica Lloyd's home. His tires matched tracks at her house as well. He is now suspected in Lloyd's murder, as well as Marie France Camo's slang in 2009, and two assaults on women in September of 2009. Could he, though? 
Could the base commander at Trenton be responsible for a string of brutal, sexually motivated attacks? This was a politically charged case. It had to be handled just so. The Ontario Provincial Police called on Jim Smith to question the commander. Jim Smith works Williams patiently and carefully, laying out the evidence, outlining what the police know. Slowly, gradually, he peels apart the facade of the base commander. Russell Williams isn't a man of honor. He's a depraved and unrepentant killer. During questioning, you can watch the subtle shift as Smith takes command of the situation, gently pushing back against Williams to position himself as the one in power. Teetering on the edge of telling all that he knows, Williams expresses concern for his wife, for the new home they just bought, a $700,000 place in an exclusive neighborhood of Ottawa. Smith sympathizes and offers Williams an out. Come clean. Tell me what you did. Think about how hard this will be for your wife. You can make this easier on her. Williams asks Smith for a map, for some paper. Smith restrains himself. His movements are slow, careful, measured. He leaves the room to look for a map of the area, but before he steps out, he offers food, water, respectful, but reminding Williams of his position in police custody. When Smith returns with a map, pencils, and paper, Williams starts writing, marking the map and talking. The long story, the long, sordid, terrifying story comes flowing out of him bit by bit. The bright and shining star of the Canadian forces confesses to all that he's done. He tells Smith names and dates, where they can find evidence in his home, where the files are stored in his computer. Again, Williams reiterates, his wife is so happy in the new house, he doesn't want the police to tear it apart looking for things. If they ask him where items are, he will tell them. Williams is extremely detailed and specific in his instructions as to where evidence can be found. Williams also draws a detailed map to the location of Jessica's remains, that she's about 40 feet from the road behind a large rock. Her body will be recovered the next day. Other officers, police, and criminologists heap praise on Staff Sergeant Jim Smith for his masterful handling of Williams. It's well-deserved praise. Watch the confession on YouTube if you're so inclined. Inches from a monster, and Smith's voice doesn't waver. He does not flinch. In fact, several times, Williams stands up and moves away from Smith, retreating to the corner of the room, trying to avoid the detective, the cameras, and the truth of what he's done. Smith does not relent. He presses Williams, and Williams falls in line, giving him information to bring the case to close. I guess what's on my mind right now, uh, Russ, is um, what made you decide to, to tell me this tonight? Mostly uh, to make my wife's life easier. Is what you told me tonight the truth? Yeah. How do you feel about what you've done? Like what? Uh... 
ask you this. If, um, if this didn't come to the point it's at right now, if for whatever reason you didn't end up on our, on our radar, so to speak, uh, do you think it would have happened again? I was hoping not, but I can't answer the question. After William's confession, the Canadian forces collected all of his military items. From his uniforms to his medals and cap and shoes, everything is rounded up, including items gathered from his homes in Tweed and in Ottawa. They were burned in a furnace at Canadian Forces Base Trenton. No photos were taken. Unlike so many parts of the story, the destruction was not documented. Every trace of Colonel Russell Williams was eliminated from the base in a very primal way. His medals and scroll are confiscated and kept in a safe, secure location. No one will profit from his belongings like previous high-profile killers have done. Canadian Forces spokesperson, Commander Hubert Genest, called the move unprecedented. He's quoted as saying, We did what we felt was necessary, and we did what we felt was right. The burning was witnessed by four high-ranking military officials in what a military historian calls an exorcism of Russell Williams from their ranks. A judge ordered that Williams' silver Nissan Pathfinder be destroyed. It was crushed into a small square along with his cameras. In October of 2010, Russell Williams pled guilty to 88 counts, including two for murder, two for forcible confinement, and two for sexual assault. Justice Robert F. Scott sentenced him to two life sentences with a no-parole period of 25 years. The 47-year-old apologized to his victims and said he is indescribably ashamed. Pleading guilty to two counts of murder is unheard of and may be a first in the nation of Canada. Williams has been stripped of his military standing, but his pension is still in place, and he is entitled to nearly $60,000 a year. His account at the prison commissary is always full. Williams' arrival at Kingston found him once again sharing a campus with his University of Toronto classmate, Paul Bernardo. When Kingston closed in 2013, Williams, along with other prisoners, were sent to Quebec's Port Cartier Institution. In 2014, Jane Doe and the family of Jessica Lloyd settled lawsuits against Williams and his wife for an undisclosed amount. Lori Massacott's lawsuits, one against Williams, another against his wife, and a third against the Ontario Provincial Police, remain active. In 2010, Mary Elizabeth Harriman filed divorce proceedings against her husband, but they do not appear to have been finalized. If you would like to hear a different take on this story from the lawyers who represented Russell Williams, I highly recommend you listen to episode three of the Can Crime podcast. That's C-A-N-C-R-I-M-E. Keep in mind that Williams took thousands of photographs and hours of videotapes, including recordings of the last hours of Marie-France Camo and Julie Lloyd's lives. These videotapes had to be viewed and cataloged and documented 
both by those who would prosecute him and by those who would defend him. It was that episode of Can Crime that interested me in this case. The story of Russell Williams and his victims was more terrible than I could have imagined. Thank you for listening to the Already Gone podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show. If you love the show, please leave a review. If there's something you don't like, drop me an email, host at alreadygonepodcast.com, or find me on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at alreadygonepod. I want to give a shout out to Luke Superior for our music. You can find him on SoundCloud, and links to his work are on our website. Thank you again for listening, and be safe. from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.